everyone. Finding Peaks 2022. First for 2022. Yeah. I was counting down episodes in the past or counting up because we reached like 36. Jeez. Yeah. In 2021. Wow. And now we're at one, so it's easy to start the counting again. <laughs> you guys are all welcome. Anybody who's been following us in 2021 knows what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And you guys have experienced what I'm talking about. In real time. For those who are joining us for the first time in 2022, Jason Friesma, Chief Clinical Officer, Clint Nicholson, Chief <laughs> Operating Officer, <laughs> and yours truly, Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer, Ossifer. <laughs> Here we go, 2022, after a rocky start. That yeah. was planned. I'm a jokester. <laughs> in, in any case, so we don't lose the audience. Yeah. <clears throat> Diving into this episode for this year, um, the thing that I wanted to discuss today was the opioid epidemic that's taking place at the same time as this historical pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, over the past two years, uh, of course, COVID-19 has taken uh, 826,000 lives or something of that nature, um, super tragic and unfortunate. Um, happening alongside of that, another 186,000 lives uh, to the opioid. Uh, epidemic, which I think represents about what, 23, 24% of the COVID-19 deaths. So we're talking about significant losses um, by comparison. And, uh, you know, given the pandemic, I haven't seen a lot about it as an epidemic taking place in the background and just wanted to remind, you know, viewers out there, certainly family systems who are struggling with opioid addiction, fentanyl, heroin, uh, whatever the doctor prescribed at the end of the day, whatever the drugs are called on the streets and so forth. Um, just kind of talk about it out loud and then just reinforce with, you know, the general viewers as well too, uh, kind of how tragic this story is and what we're witnessing. And certainly we experience, you know, at uh, peaks, uh, individuals coming into treatment struggling with, you know, opioid use disorder, um, as well as the consequences of it uh, prior to or even after treatment in that regard. So um, in sort of kicking this off, um, you know, w clinically, what have we seen around this um, as an issue and um, kind of what's our, what's our best foot forward and kind of as a, as a small treatment facility with 36 beds, you know, to operate here um, in supporting such a large uh, issue that's taking place all around us? Yeah, so as you were kind of doing that intro, Brandon, I, I do think about how um, when we conceptualize, it, it, sometimes we talk about it clinically that the opposite of addiction is connection. And so when we've been walking through this pandemic and particularly uh, at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was at home and isolated, um, it, it created a great deal of disconnection. And uh, we saw a huge spike, I think, not just in uh, overdoses, but uh, certainly in suicide as well. Um, and then it, what goes along with that is I do think increased access, particularly to fentanyl. Um, people, I, I've been talking to some of the young people that have come through Peaks and just the ability to order fentanyl, uh, even through the dark web and have it delivered literally uh, to your home, press pills or whatever, um, has become commonplace. That's kind of a new thing. And, and the other thing I was thinking about when we were talking before the show as well is that there used to be uh, a great deal of fear, I think, among, uh, among addicts about getting 
uh, drugs laced with fentanyl and all that, and now it's literally a drug of choice. I've, I definitely have seen uh, fentanyl becoming people's drug, drug of choice in a way that I hadn't seen prior in my career. And then obviously fentanyl is so potent, and, uh, and I'm positive the increase in fentanyl uh, is leading to at least partially the increase in uh, opioid overdoses. How about you, Clinton? <laughs> <clears throat> well, I've, so I started the, when the pandemic started, I was um, still working in medication assisted treatment specifically for opioid addiction. And so I, I got to see a kind of an interesting transition time um, as, the, as the pandemic hit, as COVID hit, um, access to opiates actually really um, became difficult. So a lot of people entered treatment at that time, a lot of people would start um, things like Suboxone or Methadone, and it, there seemed to actually be, at least initially, a moment of um, relief, right? And because it seemed like the, like the opioid epidemic had kind of actually started to plateau, and like the pandemic was going to maybe even accelerate that a little bit. Um, however, as access to heroin went down mm -hmm. is really what happened, um, uh, the access to fentanyl increased. And like Jason was talking about, fentanyl is nothing if not unpredictable. You never know what you're gonna get. Um, you never actually know the uh, potency. It's um, a relatively new drug on the street. So there, I think there's a lot of um, people still trying to figure out exactly what, um, like how to use it, which uh, may, may sound weird to the viewers, but I mean, there is this sort of like trial and error period Unfortunately, to err with fentanyl is to die. I mean, that's just, you're gonna overdose. So um, it's been a very, uh, I think we're in a really scary time when it comes to opiates, especially as Jason was mentioning again, that fentanyl becomes a drug of choice. Like that is just, it's dumbfounding to a certain degree that that would be your actual go-to. When before, like uh, it is, there was so much fear around it and to a certain degree, fear can be really healthy in the mm -hmm. sense that it keeps you alive. Mm -hmm. um, but as that fear starts to dissipate, the risk of increased um, opiate deaths and overdoses is, is gonna really start to, um, to escalate. Yeah. 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 And, and just to um, kind of bring the viewers close to sort of the, um, oh God, what was the word I'm thinking of here? Jason, read my mind. I'm working on it. Clinton right thing. Uh, um, Close to the stuff. The uh, sophistication there of the delivery of these drugs. It's not the word I'm looking for, but it's the next best word. Sure. Just, okay. just you stop nodding. <laughs> <laughs> but the sophistication of it, when I think about, uh, there's a, there was a gentleman in treatment during the pandemic, kind of when we were allowing letters and things to come into um, our treatment center. And the gentleman that I have in mind got a card. And it was addressed to him. Uh, kind of from mom, or it was from his grandmother in grandmother. that regard. It looked really benign. And so our policies at that time was to open up these letters in front of our clinical team members and those sort of things, read them out loud just to make sure there was nothing, you know, traumatizing or shameful or anything in that. And we could process it in real time. You know, and he gets the letter and, oh, it's from grandma, opens it up and reads it back to the clinician. And it sounds like just a small, simple, love you, hope you're doing well. And then inside it, there's a really small packet of uh, fentanyl. Uh, in that regard, and um, and in that way, not so, from grandma, to be clear, not no, from yeah, grandma, to be, to be really absolutely clear, clear yeah. but from the dark web. But 
So the letter coming in just looks like this, you know, sort of benign instance from grandma and it has drugs in it. And of course, <laughs> that's a learning lesson for us at uh, Peaks, you know, at the end of the day to change our entire protocols about how letters come in at the end of the day. But that's kind of how clever it is at the end of the day um, and how it's operating all around us. And so just be mindful of those sort of features within your own housing environment and so forth about how these drugs can be coming in because it could be very sort of elusive in that way. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, so we have this major problem, of course, fentanyl, the epidemic taking place. What is it in your guys' experience, at least in, you know, speaking with patients who are right in front of us each and every day, that's so alluring about this drug in particular by comparison to, say, you know, maybe alcohol or whatever other drugs that are out there um, for these individuals? What is the thing that's like, once they have ingested mm -hmm. it, we're off to the races, it feels like? Yeah. I, I mean, I actually think that um, opiates do two things. They um, help to kill uh, physical pain, but they also help to kill emotional pain, right? So there is a sort of dissociation that you achieve or a sort of distraction or numbing of uh, emotional escalation that I think becomes the allure. Um, I don't think that it's a lifestyle thing anymore. I don't think that there's a, a culture around it like there used to be. Um, I don't think that there's some sort of heroin chic sort of mentality that, used to, that was really prevalent in the 90s and early 2000s. I think that we are in a place of just escapism. And the allure becomes a way to control your emotional environment when the actual external environment is so chaotic and unpredictable. Um, and that's, to me, and in my experience and in speaking with clients, um, that's the actual hook right there, is this ability to control your emotional space and to feel um, or to numb out those feelings that you just, that make you feel out of control. So, kind of like a sense. blanket of safety. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. When it's so immediate, and it's so Absolutely. complete, yeah. right? It isn't like somebody having a beer after a long week of work and feeling a little bit of a relaxation. This right. is like complete Absolutely. dissociation from all of that. Um, and I think that gives it a huge amount of power. And I, the other disturbing thing I've heard people talk about with this as well is um, you know, the, the drug Narcan, which um, can kind of interrupt a, an overdose um, that that does give people like, you know, thankfully our society gives that drug away uh, pretty freely. Um, but it does create this whole other situation too where people then feel really free to push their boundaries as well with the drugs and, and really almost, I've, I've even had a couple of clients talk about intentionally overdosing to be saved by the Narcan, like the movie Flatliners from back when I was a kid. Wow. Yeah, and um, and so the, there is this whole, like it's a, it, it's a new frontier, I would say, for sure. Um, and I, I think you said it pretty well, Clinton. Like, you know, I've been doing this since uh, heroin was chic in the early 2000s. Um, and actually, it was like this opium den, and we're getting back to the 60s, and it's mm -hmm. going to be so great. And, um, and really, this isn't that. This is people at home alone uh, or on a street alone. Um, and uh, it is not a party and it is not a social event. It is uh, something that people do primarily alone, or if they do it in groups, 
It's just to, for them to try to have some semblance of safety around it, if you will. But that's what I've observed. Yeah. Yeah, it becomes, it, it's emotional control. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to some degree, all substance use is. I think that there's an element to that, but particularly with opiates. Um, and in the past, there's been a certain level of predictability, because not only, like Jason said, is it, is it sort of a complete emotional takeover, but it was a predictable emotional takeover. And now that predictability factor is starting to go away, because you just don't know what you're going right, to get. Right. If you're getting it off the street, even if you're getting it off the dark web, you don't know. Uh, I mean, now the big thing is pressed pills, right, that are made to look like Oxycontin, that are made to look like Percocet, that are made to look uh, like, you know, like a hydrocodone that you would get from the dentist, you know. Um, but it's but they're just made to look that way. And what you, you never actually know what is going to be inside of that. So every single time you put something in your body, you're really, I, I mean, it's this like Russian roulette moment all of a sudden. And um, I don't know, being in the industry, it's, it's just, it's extremely frightening to think that there's so much risk out there right now. Um, and again, it doesn't seem like the, the level of risk the level of risk is outpacing our response to it mm -hmm. and right. our ability to respond to it effectively. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it, there's no doubt that, you know, anybody who's coming into a, a treatment center certainly is suffering in their own ways. Um, other drugs give uh, a, a little bit more space and cushion, though, right? If a relapse takes place on the other side of programming and whatever that looks like, you know, if it's alcohol, um, you know, certainly, there's a variety of patient demographic who it could be immediately detrimental for, but for, mo for the most part, most people can have a few stumbles on the other side of it. And you know, for individuals who leave you know, treatment with us, like I do have, and, I'm, and maybe it's a sense among all of us, but just more fear about those individuals, even if they're on medication-assisted treatment or whatever the protocols are, um, that they're leaving treatment with um, because you just don't know what that next thing is going to be. And then it's, you know, I think about the, you know, Narcan and the use of it, you know, and, and people actively exploring what those limits are and then having that sort of buffer right there. If somebody has Narcan next to it, um, that exploration is scary. And there's also this preventative measure as well, too. And, you know, for the audience, I think I just wanted to review kind of like what that feeling was. And I think the emotional aspect of it and the blanket that we feel because when you watch it, take place, and I have um, opioid addiction in you know, my family and a history around it and being in front of it and seeing people you know, use needles and so forth, but I think a lot of people on the outside look at an individual who does this and you know, they maybe are shooting it, maybe they you know, snort it, um, however they're ingesting it, but there's this sort of immediate um, kind of just like nodding off and then falling over. And you know, my experience of people who don't understand it or are close to it are like, why would anybody live like that? Look, look at what they look like. You know, it, it's very tragic to look at somebody who is going through that as an experience, but wildly at the same time, right, they're experiencing this emotional safety and this warming yeah. blanket all around this very euphoric event. So what looks really sad and tragic to us is oddly quite comforting uh, to the individual from their own internal suffering, um, which makes it a, just a wild sort of experience to be on the other side of it at the same time um, and certainly sad and so uh, you know just kind of a follow-up into that is you know uh, we talked a little bit about it before we you know launched into this episode but 
are we experiencing from the patient demographic that we see different from you know maybe meth and alcohol and pot or whatever the case might be a certain sort of vulnerable a vulnerability of the individual that we can maybe highlight from who might be more susceptible to it and i know that's probably a big ask as a question you know mm -hmm. by comparison to um you know the diversity of the patient demographic who comes through who experiences these issues with fentanyl and opioids and so forth but um, you know, is there anything that we can maybe look out for to think that, you know, maybe I'm more susceptible versus somebody else, or is it something much different than that? Hmm. I mean, God, if I, if I had a really good answer to that question, I mean, we would be in a totally different place. If we could actually be able to sort of have those predictions, I mean, emotional vulnerability, yeah, for sure. I think that puts anybody, anybody who's in an emotionally vulnerable state is at risk for substance use in general. For opiate specific, <laughs> I, I mean, we're all over the place now. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, um, you know, part of opiates, again, in general, it, it's not just the sort of psychological addiction. There's a physiological component as well. It's, there, there's so many contradictions in opioid treatment. Uh, like when you, when you're out the, when you first get out of treatment is when you're actually at your most vulnerable for overdose. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't think that, but because your tolerance is decreased and you still have, you have low coping skills and ability to manage triggers, you know, that moment in between uh, those, those first 90 days are just so, it's such a high risk moment, which is why at Peaks, we really, really push medication assisted treatment because it's something, right? It's a one blanket to help people. It's, it's not a blanket rather, it's a tool for people to help manage those triggers. It's another coping skill. There is actually a, a physiological medication sort of um, protection that's there. Um, but generally speaking, it's, I, I wish that I could say, yes, this type of person is the one that's at high risk. So make sure that you watch out for that. But it's just not a real thing, I, I, at least not in my experience. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how predictive it can be, but I do think at the same time, I think it's a great question because uh, I've absolutely worked with people that, you know, they're, they've never done a drug in their life and yeah. they're, they're my age and they blow their knee out and have surgery and start to take opiates and it, it has such a great dissociative effect that they get hooked on it at an older age. But I certainly, you know, the younger demographic would be who we would see the most uh, yeah. with an opiate addiction. But, but I've absolutely seen people where um, it's almost like a hand slipping into a glove when they have an opiate for the first time and mm -hmm. they, all they want is more. Um, even if like they have a perfectly functional, happy life, but um, I've watched people ruin their lives kind of later in life too, um, post-surgery or with some yeah. irresponsible prescribing at times too. But. but if we could say like, oh, well, anybody post-surgery is at risk, it's just not. That's yeah, which good. isn't I true. I mean, yeah, the majority of people aren't. Yeah, you right. know, like the majority, we've all had surgeries and yeah. been prescribed medication for the pain and we're fine, you know? Like you come out on the other side without any, with nothing to worry about, none the wiser. In fact, a lot of people are really resistant to it. They're like, ah, I get sick, I get nauseous, yada, yada. So. I think that you know addiction in general is this sort of like biopsychosocial uh, hodgepodge of factors, mm -hmm. right? I think that it, there's so many different variables that go into it, and um, opiates are no different. I just I do think that opiates have an element, another element of risk involved though because of the um, the physiological addiction, mm -hmm. addictive qualities. I mean, their withdrawals are so painful and so extreme, and 
happen very quickly. You know, so the, the physiological dependence uh, oftentimes outpaces the actual psychological addiction. Mm -hmm. So you, you can kind of get caught and before you even realize it, your body is already telling you that you need more mm -hmm. before your mind is, is actually asking for it or wanting it. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, that's, that does lend to an increased risk. Yeah. Well, speaking of the, the vulnerable uh, populations, maybe we can you know, sprinkle a little flavor of vulnerability on it or who's more likely to succeed uh, post-treatment or interventions of uh, medication-assisted treatment. If you're, uh, for the viewers out there, you can look up the, the NIDA studies, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. I think they have great uh, N values as far as the participants in the studies and the outcomes that they're following, but it, there seems to be this median age of about 33 years old. And, you know, we talk about the gentleman who, you know, busts his knee doing whatever, you know, ends up in the hospital, gets, you know, loads of opioids, gets addicted in the process. Uh, those individuals are seemingly um, m like wildly successful, 65% or higher per the NIDA studies on MAT regimens. Um, and, you know, they live a life free of opioids beyond that uh, in that regard. But the age below 33, I mean, it's like a cliff. It just drops. You can look at the, the charts. It just literally falls right off. It's almost like they're not even showing up to the studies you know, one day into it, two days into it, and so forth. And, you know, my reading of that is like, we have this event that causes the individual to actually be on the opioid, and then we have this other event, I don't feel emotionally safe. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, um, you know, just emotionally not well, and don't feel safe in this world. And so I take it uh, for the first time to maybe quell this different type of pain, or I'm doing it because my buddy told me to do it, and I'm getting high uh, in that regard for the first uh, time. And, mm -hmm. So maybe anywhere in there for you know you guys where you see that difference between the young adult and the older adult, um, as far as medication-assisted treatment post-treatment as far as success goes, or mm -hmm. are we still seeing sort of a just a hodgepodge now with the fentanyl because it's so much mm -hmm. different than heroin and all the other you know opioids that have come beforehand? No, I think those studies are actually pretty reflective of what happens. I think the older you are, one, the more coping skills you've developed throughout time, the more stable. Uh, the more stable the sort of like psychosocial factors that we mentioned earlier actually have become. Um, you have more access to family, friends, um, and uh, are just, uh, again, I think a, a more uh, able to engage in the world um, even when there are, even when facing difficulties. I think when you're young, if the, the younger you start, the less coping skills you have, the less resources you have access to, the less experience you have navigating when life falls apart, because as adults, we all know that life just constantly is falling apart. And the older you are, the more time you've had to recover from that. You have that experience of being able to recover. Uh, I think that the, the medication, like Suboxone or Methadone, I think that those are just going to they increase the ability for opiates to not be the factor that brings you down. Uh, or it, it makes it less likely for opiates to be that, that crumbling moment in your life. Um, however, when you're young and you're emotionally vulnerable and you've already gone through this experience and you, have low, you don't have the coping skills to navigate these sort of difficulties, um, the chances of going back to that old coping skill, which would be opiates, whether it's heroin or fentanyl or other prescription medications, I think is just that much higher. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, that would be my experience. Yeah. I don't have much to add to that. I think you 
Yeah. Right. So, really well. so in, in going out here as well too, I think that you know, one of the major challenges of opioids in general was that this industry through its abstinence-based model really naturally stigmatized the process for individuals to really create that space. Like when I think about Suboxone, for example, right? You know, if you get a, you know, the, the, a case of like, well, I want to use today, you know, even if you stop taking Suboxone, right, you really have this preventative 24, 36 hour, maybe 48 hour window um, where, you know, the, whether you're, you know, intravenous user, intramuscular, you know, whatever the ingestion method looks like, in that regard, we really have this protective moment uh, in place, you know, Vivitrol as well, too, as another drug that creates these really long time lines, uh, sublocate injections as well, too, that reduce those, when we're triggered, those moments to immediately sort of use. And it seems yeah. wild that we stigmatize that for so long as an industry, you know, through that abstinence-based lens. And I think that also led to some shaming events um, for those individuals experiencing something wildly different than somebody maybe, you know, right or wrong on meth or whatever the other drugs might be in that regard. So, you know, really just wanted to advocate um, for these drugs and these methods moving forward because the notion here sometimes is like, oh, they just want to keep being high. And I think that's just language that we just got to do away with because um, I would, even if somebody is seeking it for that reason, it's seemingly better than seeking fentanyl to be high. Mm -hmm. And also um, gives us an opportunity to continue to save lives one day at a time uh, in that regard. And you know, if you're loved one is out there struggling with you know, opioid addiction or fentanyl or otherwise, and they're proximate to you, um, you know, reach out to your local you know, authorities as resources so that you can locate Narcan and have that in the cupboard because um, it is literally life-saving and within seconds can change an overdose into somebody breathing again and getting Absolutely. their functioning back and all that sort of stuff. So really just want to advocate for having that in the cabinet if you're close to somebody who you know, has that um, particular addiction um, or is vulnerable to it in that regard. And um, you know, with that said, any kind of last thoughts around that for you guys or? I mean, it, it, it's hard not to be a little scary and alarmist about it. I do think there's a lot of good solution out there, but I, I know kind of to wrap it all the way around to how we started the episode, like when people come in with uh, a fentanyl addiction, um, it certainly captures my attention because it is literally about saving a life. Because to your point, um, it, it could be any moment that that person uh, doesn't make it. And that is the case with a lot of drugs, but it's urgently that case uh, with fentanyl. I, I don't know why I feel like saying that warning, Yeah. yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that there should be a sense of urgency. Yeah. You know, in fact, I think that we lost a, a little bit of the, the momentum because of COVID and the pandemic. And re what we've actually seen is those two things have just continued to, to elevate and escalate together. Um, we have to stay vigilant. And like you said, Brandon, we, we have to change narratives around what it means to get treatment and the types of treatment that are available. Medication-assisted treatment is the gold standard for opioid treatment. And um, that's based on data and science and research and decades of study. So as an industry, we have to be more open and we have to, uh, and as a society, I think that we have to, again, continually work on eliminating that stigma around what it means, uh, what opiate treatment is and 
in particularly medication-assisted treatment yeah. because because this is um, yeah you just don't get many chances you know like yeah. if you it it's, takes one one time yeah and you're gone so. absolutely and you know just kind of carrying out here as well too for the you know I I think alarmism is appropriate here it's um, it's a tragic drug that can end a life quite immediately and we don't have our uh, peaks tags on us right now, but I think the sec if if somebody is not breathing or um, you know whatever the medical condition looks like, um, or uh, we think that you know they're moving in that direction and pass here at Peaks Recovery, the f I think it's like the second bullet point of other than are they breathing, the next thing is to put Narcan yeah. or distribute Narcan in that moment. Now, even if they're not on opioids, like we're just going to check that box super quick because we only have seconds, you know, if not, you know, barely minutes, yeah. you know, in that regard to revive them. So even for us, anybody who, you know, sort of has um, that symptomology or is looking like they're passing away, passing out or whatever the case might be, almost the first thing we administer is Narcan. Mm -hmm. Check that box first and then move on to the next protocols. I mean, that's how um, that's how much. It's alarming us uh, each and every day at you know peaks to pay attention to in that regard. So, um, so with that, uh, we thank you all so much for taking a little bit more time than we normally take up with our viewers. But this is a big topic, um, and it's kind of, at least in my experience, gone to sort of the wayside um, with the pandemic. You know, kind of, um, you know, being right in front of us in the media. But this epidemic is real. Uh, it's big. It's scary, and. It's taking a lot of lives uh, along the way in that regard. So hopefully this has been informational, um, giving you guys tools and resources to support it in your lives and certainly reach out for help um, if you know somebody who's struggling with it um, because it is, a, uh, it is a tragic drug that's taking lives uh, every single day here uh, in America. So uh, with that, uh, it's hard to go out with a little more energy because talking about <laughs> opioids yeah. is uh, a challenge. Yeah. Um, so in that regard, um, for all those first viewers of 2022, um, questions, thoughts, ideas, future topics you'd like us to discuss here, uh, you can reach out to us at findingpeaks at peaksrecovery.com. Uh, certainly look for us on the social medias, uh, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the Instagrams. Uh, I'm always forgetting the TikToks, what TikToks, the kids are using TikToks. these days uh, in that regard. <laughs> and. Um, yeah, I haven't done an outro in a while, so yeah. I might be missing something. But in that case, doesn't matter. I'll fix it in the future. <laughs> Appreciate you all joining us. Yeah. Hope you all have a great new year, and we'll see you again soon.